great to be back. Um, I'm so grateful to be with you. Like I said, I was gone the last few weeks. Um, I was actually in Israel, if you didn't know that. Um, but I was really grateful to have two wonderful speakers, actually three, two wonderful, three wonderful speakers the last two weeks. And guess what? You all got to meet my bosses. My first, our district superintendent, Dave Bowser, and then last week, um, Chris Backer, no relation. I hope he described that to you, um, and you probably learned my real first name. What is my real first name? Kristen, yeah, because we have to differentiate that, and his lovely daughter, Ileana. So um, if you were with us those times, last week, this time, I was at dinner, actually, watching you all on my phone, seated there, and I was like, this is crazy, right? Seven hours ahead just really messes with your mind and all. But um, we're going to start off with a scripture reading today. We're going to read this whole story together um, and then kind of walk through some, some different aspects of it. And this is also, if you received a worship guide, it's printed in there. Reading comes from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. I think it's important at times to read the whole story, the whole, we call it pericope and kind of sermon language, pastor language, um, about what's happening here. And it's probably a story you've heard before. So we're going to read this together. It'll be also on the screen to follow along. Um, so Matthew tells us, when Jesus heard what had happened... We'll talk about what had happened. But when he heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people they all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, I, I stumbled upon a story of a man named Francis Galton. Does that ring a bell for anybody here? Anybody ever heard of Francis Galton? I was hoping there would at least be maybe one person. Well, I'll tell, you, uh, I'll tell you about him. He was a man of many talents. And he was an inventor, a sociologist, a psychologist, an anthropologist, a tropical explorer, and a geographer, as well as so many other things. Like, so he's a busy guy, very smart, smart man. He was also, believe this, he was also the less famous half-cousin of someone that you have heard of by the name of Charles Darwin. Does that ring a bell? Okay, so, so he's the less famous half-cousin of Charles Darwin. So one time he was walking around rural England, and uh, he was walking around and he came upon this like, county fair. If you've ever been to like, a county fair in like, a rural area, you kind of have a picture of what that is. And he stumbled upon, as part of that county fair, a contest that was being held. And this contest consisted of this, this fenced area with this gigantic ox in it. And what the, the contest was, was can you guess the weight of this ox? 
Here at Table Life Church, we do something similar, though not with an ox. At our common meals, we often have jars that have candy in them. And you have to guess how many candies are in there, and like people put all kinds of guesses and stuff. So next time, maybe we'll have uh, Michelle take a note of there. We'll have to get an ox and get, estimate the weight. So we'll do that. But, but people came by all day to guess the weight of this ox. And some of them were what we would call local livestock experts. So people that were like butchers and farmers, like people that knew oxen, and they submitted their guesses too. And so over time, that, that day went on, and it turned out that about 800 people participated in this contest. But the thing was, by the end of the day, not one single person got the correct weight. 800 people, not one got the correct weight. And if you're curious, the weight of the ox was 1,198 pounds. 1198. And somebody did get close to that number, and they won whatever the prize was, um, but it was not exactly that number. Well, Dalton, he was interested not just in this contest and the winnings of it, but he was interested in something else. And what he did, he asked to take home the guesses that people had submitted, all 800 of them or so, and he did something with them. The first thing he noticed was that these people that had submitted the guesses had no expertise at all. Most of them had no expertise. They were just normal people like you and I submitting a guess to a random contest. And the guesses were all over the map, all across the map. The second thing, though, that he noticed was when he added up all the guesses and he took the average of all the guesses, the interesting thing was, what was the average? 1,197 point something. Amazing, huh? The average guess of the group was more accurate than any one person's guess, even the experts. So uh, this story, this story is kind of a common antidote that, that sociologists often use to explain the power of a group, the power of a group. And, and you and I, most often, we're very dismissive of groups, aren't we? especially these days, right? We call them like dumb people, lemmings, sheep. Like we, the group, they're all stupid, right? People are just stupid that way. And we emphasize the personal choice, the power of personal choice and individualism, right? That I make my own choice and I do my own thing and I'm right. And, and, but it's interesting that research shows time and again that under certain conditions, mind you, under certain conditions, there is tremendous power and potential in a group of people. And people. And the funny thing is, it often doesn't matter, just as Francis Galton found out, it doesn't matter who they are, it doesn't matter how intelligent they are, how diverse they are, it also doesn't matter how many Dallas or Penguins fans that there are. We're getting the hockey season, so now I can pick on Penguins fans. It doesn't matter that there's often more power and wisdom and potential for transformation in a collective group than even the brightest and most talented individuals among them. It's interesting, huh? And, and as many of you know, um, like I really related earlier, I'm going to interject some stories here from, from my trip to Israel. Um, and you're going to be seeing photos and hearing stories probably for the next year or so. So just get ready for it. Get ready for it. I've just been like so, so excited. And um, so I went with my parents and a friend of mine, Shelly, who actually used to serve at a church that I served at in Virginia. Um, and we went part of a tour group. So this is me right in front of the old city in Jerusalem. 
And um, this was like last Saturday. It was just crazy. I believe it was like a week ago. And, um, and it was interesting. We were part of this tour group. And um, you usually think like when you're a part of a tour, the most meaning on a tour comes from a talented tour guide. This is a picture of our tour guide, Tall. Um, that's my mom taking pictures randomly while he's talking. Um, she's watching this, by the way. So... Um, but, um, but you know, we were touring around, and, and usually you think, okay, you want to have the best tour guide who's going to show you everything. And we did. We had a wonderful tour guide. But it was interesting. I was reflecting on this a little bit later. What I found was the most powerful moments and memories that I had from the entire trip was about the community. It was about the community. It was about the people that I met and spent time with, that I encountered these spaces that Jesus walked with. These are just a couple pictures. We had an opportunity to worship with a Nazarene church that just happened to be a block from our hotel on a Shabbat service on a Friday night. Um, the picture to, your, to the left, uh, right is that, is that picture. Worshiping Jesus in Jerusalem. It was just like, like crazy. But the powerful moments and memories was in the people, in the community. And so the gospel story we just read the one we just read, of course, is many that many of us know well. Even if you're not a church person, chances are, you know, you may know David and Goliath. You may know the story of, of Noah and the ark. And you may have heard the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And um, it was really cool because I got to see the site where this took place. Um, that's a picture. It's actually, this is a picture from the, the Mount of Beatitudes where Jesus gave his sermon on the mount. But, um, but the feeding of the 5,000 took place not too far from there. Um, and you see there's like a cover that's, that's on the ground. That's actually um, banana plants. They grow a lot of bananas there in Israel. I did not know that. And they have them covered to keep out animals and all kinds of bugs and things. But that's the Sea of Galilee towards the back. And um, scholars believe that somewhere along there, we don't know exactly where, but um, that the feeding of the 5,000 took place. And it, it makes sense because there's tons of green grass, just as described in the story. And there's this kind of slope that goes down. That both for Jesus' speaking when he was sharing about the Sermon on the Mount, but then even later, this grass that kind of spreads out to the sea that Jesus both would have been seen and heard from. It was really fascinating. But the context of the story, the context that's taking place, the, the beginning of that, when Jesus heard what had happened, we have to ask that question, well, what had happened? The context is that Jesus had just heard that John the Baptist, John the baptizer, he had been taken into prison, and he would just be headed by Herod Antipa. He had just been beheaded. That's the news that Jesus had just received prior to the feeding of the 5,000. And Herod Antipa, he was the son of this guy known as Herod the Great. Maybe you've heard of him. He was the one at time of Jesus' birth put the babies to death. Not a nice guy at all. And he, Herod Anipa, the son of Herod the Great, he was, he was governing this entire area of Galilee and Perea, this whole region he was in charge of. So Jesus, Jesus is in, at Galilee in the time. And, and in the scripture tells us that he retreated to this kind of like solitary place. And the solitary place that he retreated to, you see there on the map, is this region of Idorea. Not Galilee, Idorea. Just so... He's smart. Jesus is not stupid. Jesus is smart. He, he goes outside of Herod's jurisdiction because he knows that he's next. He knows that John the baptizer, he was just beheaded, and Jesus, he's probably going to be next. So he, what does he do? He goes outside of Herod's region. So smart. 
Hurry couldn't reach him there. But you know who could reach him there? People. People could reach him there. See, people are not confined to those lines that we draw. But people could reach Jesus. And what's really interesting is this story. It's very clear. Scholars believe this. It's very clear that this story, the feeding of the 5,000, held a very central role in the life of the early church. In the life of the early church, later on, reading these scriptures, because it's the only miracle of Jesus, you know, excluding the resurrection, but it's the only miracle of Jesus recorded in all four Gospels. It's the only one. Other, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we have four versions of life and ministry of Jesus. It's the only one that's included in all four. And it's included, written to different communities. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they wrote to different groups of people, had different ideas in mind. You know, Matthew's writing to the Jewish people. Luke's writing to people that came from a Gentile background. But it's included in all of them. And something, there's something unique and special about this story that I think made them intentionally include it above anything else. And with a casual glance, it's easy to see why, right? Because Jesus, he's curing the sick, he's curing the lame in this whole crowd of people. And then we see, of course, what's happening. Time's going on and the disciples are getting antsy because it's getting late. And the disciples realize this and they're, they're getting worried. They're getting worried it's getting late, not just because it's going to get dark, but why are they worried? Why are they worried? People are going to get hungry, right? And I even say hangry. You ever been hangry before? Has your spouse ever been hangry? Don't look at them. Don't give them the eye. But, but you know, people got hangry in ancient times too. The crowd was big. You know, feeding of the 5,000, but it's not just 5,000. It's 5,000 plus the women and the kids. So we're talking about here more like nine to 10,000 people at minimum who are gathered here, learning something from Jesus, being cured, being healed. But now it's late, and the antsy, anxious disciples are like, you know, especially the type A ones, I believe, are like, oh my gosh, how are we going to do this? What's going to happen? Like, we have a great idea, Jesus. Just send them away. Send them away. Dismiss them to be fed. But what does Jesus say? Verse 16, Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. So stop it. Stop it, guys. Stop it. Like, calm down. You give them something to eat. And, and you guys know how the story we just read, how it goes from there. Disciples probably like, how on earth? Like, this is not funny, Jesus. Like, this is not cool, right? I, and I, I understand this even more clearly now after having been in Israel, because you know what? Food in Israel is so expensive. <laughs> if you ever go, I mean, it's like 25 bucks for a, for a lunch. It's crazy, right? And maybe ancient times it was like that too, right? The little food truck, that ain't going to be like a $5 cheapo burrito, right? This is expensive. And for 5,000 plus people, it's crazy. We can't do that, Jesus. What they do find is a lunch. And, and God's, John's gospel mentions in his version that it's from a boy, that Matthew's version doesn't say that, but a lunch of loaves, and fish sticks, loaves and fish sticks, and they have this, and Jesus hears of it, and he says, oh great, bring it here, bring it here, and what does Jesus do? He blesses it, and then he gives it back to them. Take note of that. He gives it back to them, and they use it to feed 
everybody. Feed everybody. Not only that, with a doggy bag. 12 doggy bags, to believe it or not. Like 12 huge doggy bags, like to take home. I don't even know what they did with it, right? And on one hand, the miracle's clear. One hand, it's clear. And there's a multitude of sermons that you've probably heard before or been suggested right here about the food. Most of the time, we focus on that, on the food. You know, first, there's the abundance in the midst of scarcity, right? That we often see the scarcity when we should see abundance. There's God using something small, loaves and fish sticks, right, to do big things. There's also the message about God cares about feeding people. God cares about meeting our bodily needs, And there's also a message of miracles can happen when we offer what we have. But what's so amazing is that five loaves and two fish become enough for nine to 10,000 people. We assume, we presume that the miracle is in the food and what we get. And I suppose that that may be the case, that I suppose it could be. But what stuck out to me when I visited that site and walked around and looked at the Sea of Galilee and looked at the, you know, this amount of space on the side of it, when I looked around, what struck me was not about the food, surprising enough. What struck me was that the miracle that happened that day may be more about what happened to the crowd. It may be more about what happened to the crowd than what happened to the food. And because we know that it wouldn't have been a miracle without the group of people there. It wouldn't have been a miracle without the people. And I don't know about you, but people can be scary, can't they? (laughs) Especially in large crowds. Do you like large crowds? Some people are like, no, 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 large crowd thing isn't for me. Uh, While I was away, I also heard I missed a Super Bowl and a sad loss, believe it or not. But crowds, right? Been any sporting match? Crowds just everywhere. But it wouldn't have been a miracle without the people, without the people. The the miracle was what happened when this group of people, this crowd became combined with a particular mission and purpose, united around Jesus. See, what's most miraculous, I think, in this story, yes, is the food, but I think what's even more is how this crowd is transformed into a community. The crowd is transformed into a community. So let's just take a moment here. So, but what's the difference? You know, what's the difference between a crowd and a community? Well, first, I think a crowd is a group of people who are together, yet alone. Physically together, but still alone. Have you ever experienced that? Been with a whole group of people, maybe even smiling and laughing and cheering, and guess what? You, were, you felt totally alone. So I want to do, if you haven't, I want to do a little quick simulation here. And this is also for you guys online, too. So, okay, get ready for this. So I want you to turn to somebody that's sitting next to you, and I want you to tell them, you look good. Okay? So compliment. Ready? Turn around. Tell them you look good. Okay? Okay. Now, equal opportunity employer here, I want you to turn to the person on the other side of you and tell them you looked almost as good. Okay, now, now that you have a group of people that think you actually look good, um, you have, there should be like threes or so, three, three of you. If you would like, if I would tell you, we're not going to do this, but if I tell you like gather with that little group of people that you just said to your left and your right, um, unofficial groups of three, did you know that according to a study by Harvard University, 
One in three of you believe that you have needs in your life, no one to meet them. You have hurts to share and no one to listen to them. And you have love to give, but no one to receive them. One in three of you. So the person to your left and to your right, you included, one out of three of you feels that way. That's, that, that, that's a, a study that was shared. 36% of Americans have ongoing feelings of loneliness, isolation, and anxiety, despite being in crowds of people. And that's even more. So young adults, those under 30, young adults, 61% of young adults feel that way. If you're a mom of young children, 51%, more than half of you, feel that way. You're alone, isolated. See, they, they, they as well as we, don't we, we recognize that something is mis missing relationally in our lives, and it's very true and possible that we can be surrounded by people, but still alone, and that's the crowd, guys. That's when you're part of a crowd. You're still alone. But the second thing about a crowd is that a crowd consists of people who are together, but also divided. Not just alone, but divided. And I think we would probably all agree in this sense that there is great division in our society right now. And there is great division even in, I would say, the big C church among denominations and things. Like, you know, you look, I look at like my, my news feed and I just see this person going off at that person. I'm like, you're both Christians. Like, you're both following Jesus. Like, what's going on, right? And last week, last week, my friend Chris, he, he and Eliana, they talked about the kind of the decline of the church and yet how there's possibility in that, how, how we can watch how Christians act and treat one another. And even in that, you know, we can divide into little camps, but you know what happens in that division? It leads to our demise. Division leads to demise, because the reason, a little scientifically here, is that it's found in the law of entropy. Remember this from high school days? Law of entropy, or the second law of thermodynamics, which states things that are isolated move towards deterioration. Remember that. Things that are isolated, people included, move towards deterioration. And we see this spiritually. We see this relationally. We see this emotionally. Whatever is cut off tends towards deterioration. See, that's the crowd. A divided, even though they're together. But then there's also the fact that the crowd, a crowd is also about their own agenda. A crowd is about their own agenda. See, the crowds that formed around Jesus were there to get something from Jesus. Initially, they were there to get something. Jesus is going to give something to me. I'm going to receive something from Jesus. And each person was individually about their own needs and themselves, not caring about the next person in line. And we see that time and time again with Jesus. And then we see also what happens when they don't get their way. What do they do? Psh, they walk away. See, a crowd is about their own agenda. So we see these things about the crowd, but then we see what is a community. See, a community, and this is the transformation that happened that day on that, that side of the, the Sea of Galilee. A community is a crowd, but one that has a shared purpose and a shared responsibility for one another. Transformation, a change, a common set of values, a perspective, and a mission and a vision towards the world, a collective purpose. See, it's interesting to note, in ancient Israel, in ancient Israel, no town, no town had a population greater than about 2,000 people at that time. There was no town that had a, a population greater than 2,000. But how many people were there that day? Like 10,000? So that means there were a lot of different towns represented. 
a lot of different locations and places, meaning that these people came from diverse backgrounds, places, beliefs. That, that they gathered there, though, they were first united to learn around Jesus, and then they would be fed and would feed. But then Jesus would inform their lives together. That it was not just about receiving, but it was about going out and being, being the instruments that God would use as well. See, I think perhaps the first time and maybe the only time before Jesus' death, this crowd, a crowd, was transformed into a community. See, they gathered on the mission of hearing words of Jesus and who he was and sharing they, they gathered with ordinary people, the disciples, as leaders, right? These were people that were, were not greatly educated. These were people that had, had day jobs. These were ordinary people as leaders. And so thinking of that, I can see why for the early church this story would have been so inspiring. Because it's a reflection. It's a reflection of us. It's a reflection of them. See, we have to remember that Jesus did not feed the crowd, Jesus didn't feed the crowd because the, the raw material first existed right in front of them in the midst of the crowd the entire time. It existed, the five loaves and two fishes. It wasn't like Jesus said, poof, here you go. Like, no, it was there. See, Jesus didn't provide the food and he himself didn't provide extra. He asked, what do you have? And he took it and he blessed it. And then, then he gave it back to them. Think about that. He gave it back to them, the disciples, the ordinary, anxious, stressed out, worried people. He gave it back to them, and they were the ones that went around to feed everyone. See, I think part of the reason why it's included in the four Gospels was not just because a lot of people ate that day, but it foreshadowed what Jesus was all about. What Jesus was all about, the power of what would happen when diverse people would gather and become the true community in the name of Christ. To put maybe their differences aside and to say, hey, we're rallied around the cause and the person of Jesus. Theologian and scholar Leslie Newbegin, one of my favorite authors, he said this, this quote has stood out to me, what Jesus left behind was not a book but a community. What Jesus left behind was not a book. The book, Bible came a lot later, by the way. He left behind not a book, but he left behind a community, people. And when ordinary people, when peasants and merchants from different places, languages, skin colors, we all gathered together, the potential and power was right there in the crowd that decided to build itself around a common vision and a purpose of Jesus that would come to serve one another, to pass around the food, to make sure that everyone ate and was a part of that. So thinking about all this, what does that miracle mean? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for you? Well, as part of my trip, um, uh, one day, I believe it was the, uh, Wednesday a week ago, I knew that part of our trip was going to involve going to visit the Jordan River. And my friend Shelly, who came with us, um, she currently lives in Arizona, so this was kind of a little reunion for us. Um, she uh, grew up Jewish and then started to follow Jesus, and she wanted to be baptized. So um, I packed my, my uh, bathing suit and my uh, water shoes and that kind of thing and my suitcase. And 
Uh, we knew we were going into the Jordan River that day, so I was getting ready to do that. And so um, as part of that, we wanted to ask the tour guide like what the schedule was that day when we were going and, that, and whatnot. And so we talked to him about that, and he said, oh, you're a pastor. He had never met a female pastor. Um, and he's like, oh, you're a pastor. He said, well, would it be okay if I let the entire tour bus know that there's a pastor here, and if anybody else would like to be baptized, like, would you be game for that? And I like, looked at my friend, and she's like, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I guess so. You know, I'm thinking, like, you know, nobody's going to do this. Like, it's cold out, right? And... Um, would you believe like nine people were like, sure, we all want to be back. Like there's this couple from California that had just come to faith and all these people. And, um, and I'm like, oh my gosh. So I like immediately, as soon as we had access to Wi-Fi, I check my phone and this is what I read. We'll put this up on the screen. Water temperature in the Jordan River, 55 degrees. So just mind you, the baptistry, we had baptisms here in January, and we had the nice little pool here, and several of you were baptized. The water in there was 98. Yeah, yeah, so thank you, Mike Border and Court and friends for keeping me nice and toasty, like, next one, hey, watch out, right? Get ready, you will remember that baptism. But um, yeah, so I checked that, and I'm like, oh boy, like, this is going to be great. Great, great, great. And uh, mind you, it had been like like um, uh, like upper 40s, like maybe 50 degrees all week, and raining. It rains in Israel. I didn't know that. Just believe it. It rains in Israel, especially in the wintertime. Um, so it's been rainy, and so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm like, I'm going to suck it up. Like, I have to be in there the longest. Everybody else kind of comes and goes. And um, so we get off the bus we go and get changed and, and whatnot, and then line down. Um, I have a picture of our whole little group that was there. Um, it's just, yeah, really, really cool. And I have everybody, I'm like, first, we're doing all baptismal vows, like, on the shore there. I mean, it's cold enough out here, but I'm not getting in that water longer than I have to. And um, so we did that, and then one by one, um, had people go in the water. And what was cool, out of that group, there was the, you'll see the one um, African-American, or um, African lady who was standing behind me. She um, asked if she could be my assistant. She'd never done that before. And, um, and so that was a great opportunity for Jane to also be a part of that. And so one by one, we baptized folks. Um, this next picture is a picture of me baptizing my friend Shelly. Um, which was really meaningful when you have that opportunity to do that. And, um, and just in the Jordan River, not necessarily at the exact spot that Jesus' baptism was, but in the same river, and it was amazing experience. And I have to say, my feet were numb by the end of that one. Um, but, but what was interesting was even after this, and, and we talked about this like on the tour bus afterwards, um, after this, uh, even the days for, uh, following, um, it had been raining that whole first part of the week, but then it was sunny the rest of the week. It's like that was like the turning point. And, and I believe that was also the turning point in our community. In the community, in the, in the people that as we got to know people, like before, you know, we're sitting around dinner, talking and having conversation. We're no longer just people together on a bus. We're no longer the crowd, but a community. People. And so on my 12-hour plane ride home, um, I was, had lots of time to think and reflect and um, was reflecting on the trip, but then I was also thinking about you. I was thinking about us. And I recognized, and I don't know why I'm tearing up, but I recognized there is a tremendous amount of power and potential right here in this room. That God is doing something 
crazy and big here. That, that, uh, the question, what will we become? What, what will we do with our loaves and fish? What will we do what, with what we have? And I think whether you're brand new and you've been coming like two weeks or a week or whatever, or you've been coming your entire life here to Table Life Church, um, you know, maybe, maybe you too feel like there's something miraculous happening here. I, I do. I do. I think about that and pray. And the people that God has brought, and I don't think you're here by chance by any means. And, and I think the clue to the way forward exists here in this story. Because you think about this. We're in here. We're in central Pennsylvania, right? There's so many crowds there's so many meaningful community, right? Uh, there's uh, people that think they have meaningful community, but they don't. You know, there's people who are doing all sorts of things, so many agendas, politically, not politically, whatever, and, and an opportunity to do and join in a shared power and purpose and vision is very, very limited. And there's a lot of passion. There's a lot of passion. You see passion everywhere, but it's pa passion around destruction, around destroying each other, rather than being constructive. And that's rare. And there's people that are searching for so many different things. But, but the power of an authentic Christian community where Jesus is fully and truly Lord is really lacking. What if that were us? What if that were us? The crowd transformed into that community. You know, I look around and I, I just have that sense and I was on the plane thinking about this and I'm like, there's something brewing here and it's not me. Like, I want to get out of the way. Like, let Jesus do what Jesus is going to do. That you, just like the disciples, are the agents of the miracle. You're the agents of the miracle. I believe that, and if you don't believe that, remember the disciples, how messed up they were. Right? You're like, I have nothing to offer, like I only have this, whatever. Guess what? That's the perfect conditions for a miracle to take place. But for us here, it may require lying, down, uh, lying to the side some of our preconceived ideas. It may mean leaving the safety of your seat. It may mean joining. We have table group signups. We've had them. We're going to uh, start them in a couple weeks. It, it may taking the risk to get to know people and becoming connected. And it may mean opening up to some people that are very, very different than you and sitting together and joining together around tables. See, I'm a believer that you never know what God wants to do in someone through you, and you never know what God wants to do in you through someone. And if you cut yourself off, guess what? That's not going to happen. God respects that. That's not going to happen. See, I believe there's something powerful happening here. It's not about a building. The church is not a building. It's about the people, that we are a crowd that God has called together to transform into community, united around a purpose and a vision to submit ourselves at the feet and the table of Jesus. And friends, when that happens, that's when miracles occur. As you look around, Look to your left and to your right, just for a moment. Look around. We have all that we need for a miracle in the making. All that we need to do the work that God has called us to. And the most important part is you. Is you. So my question to you today, and we're going to go to the table in a couple minutes, will you choose to be part of that? Or will you cut yourself off or isolate yourself? Like I said, isolation tends toward deterioration. You know, do you want to be part 
of what God is doing? Do you want to step in and say, I am all in in this. I am all in. Or I'm going to take a step. You know, maybe I'm not all in yet, but I'm going to take a step and say, I'm going to like figure this out. I'm going to walk with you, Jesus, and take that. Will you choose to be not just part of the crowd, but part of the called community? Let's pray.